0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Hey, it's Sean Elling, and I'm here to tell you that on Thursday, October 13th, the Vox Conversations podcast will officially relaunch as the gray area. A philosophical take on culture, politics, and everything in between. Ideas that aren't black and white, just many shades of gray. I'll be the full-time host. It's going to be the same show, asking all the big questions. We'll just have a new name. And look, we've been working on this show for a long time, and we're finally ready to bring it to your ears. So hop on board and stay subscribed. Today, we're going to bring you an episode from our archives. A conversation from July 2021 between my colleague, Zach Beechamp and Columbia Law School professor Jamal Green. It's a discussion that's very much worth revisiting in light of this week's new Supreme Court term and the many questions in the world of American
2: law. Here's Zach. Have we been thinking about rights the wrong way? This is Zach Beecham. I'm a senior correspondent at Vox, and I write about politics and ideology. This week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Americans love to talk about rights. The Declaration of Independence says, for example, that we all have certain unalienable rights. The Bill of Rights is one of the best-known parts of the Constitution, and in recent years the Supreme Court has given us all sorts of new rights, from the right to privacy to the right not to be forced to buy health insurance, depending on how you read the recent Obamacare decisions. So the standard line that you hear from a lot of Americans is that we need this kind of strong rights protection to protect our freedom. But what if that's wrong? What if Americans are so obsessed with rights that they're actually tearing the legal and political system apart? That's the argument in How Rights Went Wrong, a new book by Columbia Law professor Jamal Green. Green's argument is that American constitutional law has developed a kind of unique approach to rights, at least compared to peers in the developed world. Uh, It treats them as, as absolute, inviolable, the kinds of things that you can't cross unless they conflict with some other kind of right. And by doing so, he argues, The U.S. legal system has become nonsensical and dangerous. That's not only leading to bad outcomes in court cases, it's leading to bad outcomes in people's real lives and, in some ways, making political polarization worse. It's a really interesting argument, fascinating and in some ways very provocative. So I'm delighted to have Jamal on to talk about it. Jamal Green, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for the great summary. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Um, but you know, when I, when I started reading it, it, it struck me as a little bit counterintuitive to think of rights as anything but absolute. You know, my own sort of intellectual background is more in moral theory than legal theory. And when you talk about rights in, in moral theory, it's, you know, a right is a claim that gives you some kind of uh, guarantee against other people's behaviors. And, and that guarantee is, is very strong, right? But you argue that the way that American courts have operationalized this idea in the legal context is different than the way that other countries like the U.S., you know, pure countries like Canada or Germany do things. Can you walk me through the difference between the American approach to rights and, and what you see in other countries? Sure, and I'm
3: I'm glad you, you mentioned the difference between thinking about this in moral terms and thinking about how legal systems approach this problem, because I, I think that's very much at the core of the book, which is not a claim about the kind of moral status of rights. It's really about what we should do in a political society in which there are people who disagree with one another in fundamental ways, and you need to have a system of social control courts that are going to resolve those conflicts. I actually think that courts shouldn't be really referring to moral theory when they figure out how to resolve those conflicts. They should be referring to actual facts. And so you ask what's the difference between how Americans tend to approach these problems and how they tend to be be approached in in other countries— And a a big part of the difference is whether you think about rights conflicts as an opportunity to declare who has rights and who doesn't, which is what I think of as the American approach, versus thinking of rights conflicts as situations in which there are very often rights on, on all sides. There are really important interests on all sides. There might be private citizens who have different interests from one another. There might be a government that is passing a law or pursuing a policy that's supported by Democratic citizens. So there are interests whirling all around conflicts that we call rights conflicts. And in a lot of other countries, and this is really the dominant approach, the kinds of questions that get asked are not who has rights and who doesn't, but what is the government trying to do here? How are they burdening people? How much are they burdening people? What kinds of alternatives are available to the government that might not necessarily burden people in the same way? These are basically factual questions about the context of the rights dispute rather than these kinds of existential questions of who's the rights holder and who isn't, which ends up being, as you say, describing
2: the book, quite polarizing. So that's interesting, right? The difference here. It seems like the American approach certainly is is ideologically connected to the notion uh, that the legal theorist Ronald Dworkin calls rights as trumps, right? The idea that rights are are kind of side constraint that prevents governments from making policy or perhaps obligates them to take certain policies because people deserve those things and they deserve them relatively absolutely and you can't violate them absent some kind of truly compelling interest. But in other countries there's this doctrine, I believe it's it's called proportionality in legal theory that allows for more contextual judgments by judges rather than having to go try to dig up what somebody thought in the 18th century about what a gun was and whether or not it's the kind of gun that you should be allowed to own, to use an example that that comes up in the book.
3: Yeah, Yes, that's right. I kind of think of it as the U.S. thinks about rights conflicts on the front end, which is how do you define the right, whereas proportionality, which is a, the legal term, involves thinking about rights conflicts on the back end, which is, well, how do we... How do we actually resolve what the government is doing and who's being affected by it? And those are are questions that rely on the facts and the context of a particular dispute.
2: So one thing that I found really striking in the book is that it seemed to me on a like a naive read of American history that the rights as Trump's side constraints type view really does date back to the founding. After all, as I mentioned in the intro, there's this line about certain unalienable rights in the Declaration, uh, which would seem unalienable and seem to suggest that no one can get rid of them and nothing can violate them. but. You argue in the book that the founding era conception of how rights were supposed to work is actually a lot closer to what we now call proportionality, to making kind of judgment calls to the democratic process, or at least judges having to make those judgment calls sometimes as well, than what we see in the United States today. Tell me a little bit about how the founders in in your account actually thought about the way rights were supposed to work.
3: Yeah, great. So I start with the founders in large part because – I get exactly the reaction that you've had, which is, but we're Americans, and this is what our founders envisioned. And look at the Declaration of Independence, which talks about these unalienable rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But of course, right after that line in the Declaration of Independence, it says, and that's why governments are instituted among men. And actually, men is relevant here as well. Uh, But that's why governments are instituted. It doesn't say And that's why we have federal courts, right? It doesn't say that's why we go and get judges to overrule the the judgments of the community. It says that's why we have political societies. And so the founders understood rights very, very well. My argument is not that the founders didn't take rights seriously. They took rights very seriously. But the way in which they thought about understanding the meets and bounds of rights was not through a judgment made by a court or someone outside the community or someone who is in dissent from the community protecting the rights of dissenters it was that rights are inherently communitarian the reason we form societies is to protect the rights of the people who live there and the way you you work out the meets and bounds of those rights are by creating political institutions legislatures that are beholden to the people who live there juries which were incredibly important in the founding era in ways in which they are less important today churches. and I argue that much of the First Amendment religion clauses are about protecting local churches from outsiders, right? So it's not that rights weren't important then, but that rights were understood in ways that required political institutions in order to realize them. Now that's, that vision is highly flawed, especially in the founding era, where these were exclusive communities, so the political institutions that they were developing excluded people, namely people who were not property like males. And also terrorize people, right. uh, including people who were enslaved, right? So that vision failed, and it's important to acknowledge that. But there is, I think, something to recover in the notion that rights are inherently political. Figuring out where your rights end and mine begin is a political exercise, and not one that's very easily outsourced to judges, even if we think there are often reasons why judges do have to be involved.
2: Yeah, you know, when you were talking about juries and local democratic institutions as like the the guarantors of rights, it, it really struck a chord with me as some other reading I've been doing about the founding era recently, about the, the influence of small-R Republican thinking on the founding, right? This is a, a species of political philosophy that traces its intellectual lineage back to democratic Rome. And and the basic idea of Republican politics is that the politics isn't just about a system of government and the rules that you impose and so on. It's also about the character of the people who participate in it. And so you have these engaged citizens who work really hard to, you know, volunteer in political life, to vote, to beyond juries to to do the meat and the work of turning the abstract ideas of democracy into reality and it's the virtue of these citizens in republican thinking that really determines how those institutions play out in practice and that, that to me was really evident in the way that the founders thought and talk about rights in your book right the the vision that you present because it's all about this local very, very interactive implementation of abstract ideas. At the same time, though, in addition to the criticisms that you just mounted, which I think are related, right? Like who gets included in this vision of an ideal deliberative citizen? It certainly wasn't women and black people at the time. Definitely wasn't indigenous people either, right? There's also a problem of scale. You had the United States as it was in the 18th century when they were designing these institutions. And then you know, a hundred years later, you have the United States as a rising industrial powerhouse, and you have a whole different set of questions and a much larger population and urbanization that make this kind of small-scale deliberative democracy much, 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 much harder to do in practice, and certainly much harder to use as like the foundation for governing a country. So, is that the kind of pressure that caused American thinking about rights to change, or, or was it something else that led us more towards? The kind of vision that you criticize us for having today. Well, I
3: think it's both what I identified as a kind of failure to recognize outsiders and minorities, and what you recognize as the the problem of bigness, which are related to each other. I think of them both as the problem of integrating pluralism and cosmopolitanism into this lowercase R Republican vision that I think you rightly identify. Both of those problems make it very difficult to identify anything that you could call a common good. There's been a transition in American political thought from that lowercase Republican vision to a vision that says, you know, the the common good is just an aggregation of, you know, the interests of different um, people. And I think we tend to adopt that kind of faith today. The major pressure point above all in a word is race. And the fact that You had a large population of Americans who were entirely excluded from politics, and that lasts certainly up until the Civil War and the 14th Amendment, but also well after it in large swaths of the country. And the response to that, and there's a long story to be told here, but but part of the response to that is an eventual recognition with the demise of Jim Crow in the middle of the 20th century that... There are certain populations whose rights have to be taken much more seriously than they're being taken by the political process. You need judges in cases like Brown versus Board of Education to step in and interfere with local politics. Local politics is not trustworthy under that uh, vision of politics. At the same time, you have a a bunch of other uh, people making rights claims in the 20th century that relate to economic change. For lawyers, they'll know this as the Lochner era, Lochner versus New York, a, a case in which the Supreme Court strikes down a New York law that sets a maximum number of hours for bakers. And it's kind of stands in for this Supreme Court deciding that businesses and corporations have a right against labor regulation, have a right against health and safety regulation. And middle of the 20th century, there's a recognition that it's problematic for courts to constantly interfere with um economic decision making by legislatures but at the same time that courts are essential when it comes to racial discrimination so we developed this system where there are kind of two tracks for rights you're either making the kind of claim that courts should not interfere with at all or you're making the kind of claim a race based claim that courts should interfere with maximally and when we get into the 1960s and 1970s when people are making rights claims that are much more complicated Than just claims about Jim Crow segregation. People are making claims about access to the welfare state. People are making free speech claims that are university speech, or, you know, I want to burn my draft card, or I want to resist a a defamation judgment. We're talking about the sexual revolution, we're talking about the women's rights movement, we're talking about eventually abortion rights. And these can't easily be put into a category of, on the one hand, these are absolute rights that can never be regulated in any any way, or on the other hand, they're not rights at all. So most of our rights conflicts live in between those extremes, but our judicial infrastructure is set up to try to choose between one or the other, and that's the central problem of the book.
2: There's so much that I want to unpack in what you just said, sort of on two tracks, on the economic track and and the race-related track, though obviously the two are connected, but I want to start with the, the first track. Economics, Because there's really, uh, I think, striking passage in the book where you compare the way that U.S. courts have handled claims about housing and and welfare state rights, including ones that had race implications like in San Antonio about residential segregation with respect to Mexican Americans, and the way that courts in India have handled economic rights. There's a much more robust constitutional guarantee of substantive economic rights in the Indian constitution. And that has been cashed out in various different ways by the courts, but these have allowed in net a much less wealthy society to guarantee stronger economic protections than one might expect given its you know GDP per capita. And the United States doesn't have that kind of constitutional infrastructure. But your discussion of the Lochner case makes me worry a little bit about trying to introduce more economic thinking and economic judgment calls into the way that American justices might make their decisions. Because you have this really powerful strain of ideological libertarianism in the US legal academy, which doesn't exist in India in the same way. like It just is not a presence there. And it led to, as you noted in the Lochner era cases, invalidating a series of rights protections for workers and for arguing that there is a robust right to contract that businesses have that allow them to control the way that workers operate. And it seems to me that in a, in a 6-3 court favoring Republicans, you can imagine large chunks of America's welfare state, thin as it is, getting invalidated by a court that's allowed to use you know factual judgment calls about economic reasoning to say that, you know, businesses have rights that are being violated by minimum wage laws, right? That's a hypothetical example. But in a world where we embraced that kind of jurisprudence, I wonder, given the makeup of the court system, if it might cut the opposite way than it has in other countries.
3: So I I think that's very possible, right? So you've identified a, a potential, essentially political consequence of freeing judges to make judgment calls in cases involving economic rights. Now, as you know, there's a potential progressive consequence of that, which is in the 1960s and 1970s when judges were confronted with claims that, for example, families of a certain size should be entitled to more welfare payments or claims that kids in poor schools should get the same kind of funding from the state as kids in in wealthy schools, which seems fairly obvious, but was um, rejected by courts, on the idea that courts don't get involved in economic decision-making by the state. You're absolutely right that the flip side of that is courts might be more involved in restraining the welfare state. And if you have a, a libertarian orientation to courts, that they might do that. The book is not about achieving some set of progressive outcomes necessarily. Different societies are going to strike the balance of rights in different ways. And if we have a more libertarian society than India, then... I don't think it's inappropriate for our constitutional judgments to reflect that. That said, there are already numerous ways in which libertarian economic thinking slips into judicial opinions, but it does so in ways that end up distorting other kinds of rights. So the First Amendment becomes the kind of catch-all for all kinds of libertarian thinking. Uh, So there's a recent case involving whether people who uh, don't want to join the union, municipal union, nonetheless have to pay Uh, Union dues if the union is bargaining collectively on the behalf of those people. And the court said that they have a constitutional right to not pay those dues because of the First Amendment, because something about their speech being compelled by the union in its collective bargaining. one, One can argue about whether that's right or wrong as a policy matter. One can argue about whether it's right or wrong as a matter of economic liberty. But what I want to do is encourage if if that's where you want to go, right, stand up and say, I think the Constitution protects economic liberties as opposed to smuggling them in into other doctrines. So part of the, the book's purpose is to make courts more transparent about the decisions that they're making, which is the only thing that they have going for them. I mean, if courts are not going to be transparent, then we should not be using them.
1: Judges are human beings. They have biases, political leanings, and they make mistakes, like human beings do. Given all this, what role should the courts play in determining our rights? Zach will ask Jamal Green what he thinks after a quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com box fox. That's Burrow, B U R R O W dot com slash box for fifteen percent off. Burrow dot com slash box.
2: It seems like a real undercurrent of the book is a, a critique of judicial dishonesty. It's not the language that you use, but it's the language that, that I use when I'm <laughs> thinking about it, right? It's like judges are people and they smuggle in their biases like everybody else. And so a lot of constitutional reasoning or what passes for constitutional reasoning in scholarship now is, let me figure out some way that I can justify my policy preferences under a like neutral-sounding constitutional schema.
3: A, yes, that's right. It is a plea for transparency. It's also a plea for talking about constitutional issues and rights issues in particular in the same language in which we do in the political process, because rights disputes are political, that doesn't mean that judges shouldn't be involved in them at all. But that does mean that the conversations that courts have about rights should be continuous with the conversations that the rest of us have about rights. Maybe the best example of this is is gun rights and gun control, for example, where the Second Amendment becomes a question about original understanding or original meaning, which is the kind of thing that judges have access to and that lawyers and courts have access to, when the important questions when it comes to gun control are not questions about whether anyone has a right to bear arms, which we can all concede that without answering any of the important questions for social regulation. What about concealed carry? What about this particular kind of gun? Um, Who can carry? What about licensing requirements? There are a million different questions. And those are the kinds of questions that we answer through policy discussion. And there's no reason for that to be a different conversation than judges are having. The only consequence of making it a different conversation is to cede power over political decision-making to courts in domains in which there's nothing inherent in our constitution That requires courts to be
2: the only ones making these decisions. That's very interesting because I feel like proportionality gives courts more leeway to make these sorts of decisions for legislatures, which would raise some concerns about democratic control of the political system, obviously, with any counter-majoritarian institution. But you think that courts – rejecting this interpretive lens, this like, we can go back in time and divine what's happening, or, or we can see the inner soul of the Constitution, and it says, you know, you have X right, that rejecting that would actually lead to uh, more robust decision-making by Congress uh, and by other political institutions. Why is that? So there are different ways of thinking about the power of
3: courts, what I'm worried about is not that courts exercise discretion or judgment. That was the way Justice Scalia, when when he was alive, would often talk about court power in those terms, is courts need to be constrained so that they don't have discretion. But there's another way of thinking about the power of courts, which is how much control do courts have over our political life? Mm. And if a court says, I am constrained to say that you may not enact a public safety law That's an enormous amount of power to give to courts over our political life. And I would much rather courts exercise discretion, but in ways that acknowledge the parallel power of political institutions to weigh in on the same decisions, right? Part of the reason why Justice Justice Scalia says courts can't have discretion, and he says this quite explicitly on a number of occasions, is because that would make them less valuable, (laughs) Political institutions are supposed to be the ones that exercise discretion. Why give questions to courts if there's not a firm, settled law that tells courts exactly what to do? Why not just leave it to politics? And I want to say, well, the fact that you want courts to not have discretion doesn't make something apolitical. You can't wring out of the Constitution a bunch of answers to questions that aren't there. The Constitution only goes so far. We have a very sparse, very short Constitution. It's not very specific. And so it it runs out at some point. And so we have to figure out what is the role of judges when it's clear text runs out. And that's most of our political conflicts over rights.
2: It's a very interesting point, especially in context of the the civil rights issues that you were mentioning earlier, because that's one of those cases where it seems like the more absolute line served the country really well, in that courts needed to say— That segregation in schools was unconstitutional. On down the line of horrific things that created an apartheid system in the United States, right? That the courts helped enforce. They started to enforce both ways, right? When they upheld Jim Crow provisions in cases like Plessy versus Ferguson, and they allowed political actors to pass laws that, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that ended up working to dismantle the system. So. Would an embrace of some kind of more measured judgment system made things have worse during that period when absolute rights served us well? Like, how do you think about the sort of counterfactual history there?
3: So one is, as you note, the, the court's record when it comes to civil rights is extremely mixed at best. Um, and Plessy versus Ferguson is more the norm than the exception over the course of the Supreme Court's history. But let's talk about Brown versus Board of Education because that's, of course, a case where You don't want the court to say, well, on the one hand, black children are being denied the right to go to the school of their choice. But on the other hand, the white parents in these school districts really want a kind of freedom of association, which was talked about a lot at the time. And we've got to balance those rights in some way. I I, I don't favor that. That's not the message of the book. But the message of the book, I think it is something that Brown helps us to articulate because the problem in Brown versus Board of Education was not that there is a thing in the Constitution called the Equal Protection Clause. And the right way to understand the Equal Protection Clause is that it doesn't allow segregation. And As Plessy versus Ferguson reflects, that's a seven-to-one decision. Uh, there were lots of dif- differences of opinion about whether the 14th Amendment allows segregation or not. The problem of Brown is that you had the majority of the population subordinating the minority of the population. The problem of Brown is a problem of racial terrorism. And so it's perfectly appropriate for courts to step in when legislatures are engaged in acts of subordination of classes of their citizens. And in Brown, they were doing so in quite transparent ways. That's very different from saying anytime we see the word race being used in a governmental policy, that that's automatically an equal protection problem. Um, That's how courts have understood affirmative action, for example. And so if we think about what's the difference between Brown versus Board of Education and a public school's affirmative action policy, well, yeah, they both involve racial discrimination, right? But one involves terrorism and the other doesn't. And so those are different cases. However you think affirmative action cases should come out, those are very different cases. That's just one example of a way in which the differences between cases and the similarities between cases should track their facts rather than tracking abstract legalisms like what do the words of the 14th amendment mean because those don't get us very far we disagree about what the words
2: of the 14th amendment mean so let's get past that i found that really clarifying it it really helps underscore that the problem here isn't courts using judgment or political judgment because they do that all the time already under the current system it's that not only like do they wrap it up in some kind of confusing interpretive language, but that thinking about things in this pure abstract interpretive lens rather than judges being honest with themselves about the ways in which they are making judgment calls causes them to make a series of bad judgments and misjudgments and errors and misapplications of this abstract theory to cases where a more nuanced textured approach would lead to uh, better outcomes – can you give me some examples of contemporary issues? There are a few in the book, but I'm curious, as you know, for you to expand on them, where this kind of approach has led to real harmful outcomes in cases.
3: Well, I, this is one of these things where once you find this hammer, you see the nails everywhere in terms of where the problems lie. Yeah. Um. So the book weighs in on lots of different contemporary controversies on abortion rights, anti discrimination laws. So there's a chapter that focuses on the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. This is a case in Colorado where this baker says he's not going to bake cakes for same-sex weddings because he's a devout Christian and doesn't want to participate in those weddings. And there's a Colorado law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. He gets dinged under the Colorado law, as interpreted by the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission, gets to the Supreme Court. And the culture warriors sort of line up on both sides of this issue is, you know, if you let someone like this baker do what he is suggesting, that is just the same thing as allowing a constitutional right to discriminate in all kinds of ways. And so you can't allow that. And then on the other side, you know, if you don't let this person make decisions About who to serve on the basis of his religious beliefs, well, then that's just the same thing as suppressing his religion in all kinds of ways. There's a brief in that case that compares it to the beheading of Sir Thomas More. And we all just kind of get into our corners. Um, This is a big theme of the book, is that when we think about rights in these sort of abstract legalistic ways, in these binary ways, we end up aligning the modern conflicts with their worst possible (laughs) analogs. Right. So the, this baker is compared to segregationists from the 1950s and 1960s. And this couple that wants, just wants a nice cake for their wedding is compared to people who are persecuting Jews in biblical times. Uh, right. So we, we end up with this sort of really polarized atmosphere just because we think that we have to convert our political conflicts into a kind of binary language of rights. I could give lots of, of other examples. I'll I'll just say one of the other major problems of this approach is that when you think of rights as being absolute or even close to absolute, it's going to get lead courts to be very skittish about declaring that there's a right in the first place. So that's where the kids in San Antonio, poor kids who can't get access to a decent education because they live in a poor neighborhood, the court says almost explicitly we can't equalize everything, and so there must not be a right here. Or in the disability context, the court says, you know, because we can't define the category of disability in a way that allows us to not sort of equalize everyone, the people who are obese or people who are very short or people who have drug addiction. You know, if we can't define the category in a way that limits our discretion, then there must not be a right here.
2: So, yeah, I think one of the really interesting and and comparatively novel arguments that you make is this isn't just about like polarizing outcomes in legal cases, right? It's not just that like courts have to make these all or nothing judgments that those are bad. It's also that this contributes to political polarization, which is the big topic right now in a lot of different ways, that courts coming down so hard on one side or the other forces parties to pick sides, right? And I think the really telling example in the book is, is abortion, right? You, you have this contrast between the American handling of abortion and the German handling of abortion in the courts. Do you want to just, before we get into it, because there's a lot I want to talk about in there, give a little background on the difference between how these two court systems decided on the abortion case?
3: Sure, and I, and I think this is a really interesting parallel here. Uh, so the German constitutional court, the, at the time the West German constitutional court Had an abortion case at about the same time as Roe versus Wade, uh, a couple of years after Roe versus Wade. And it comes up in an almost opposite context. So in Roe versus Wade, the court is ruling on laws coming out of Texas and Georgia that restrict abortion in various ways and deciding whether the autonomy interests of women mean that those laws have to be struck down. In the German context, abortion had been illegal. In almost all contexts. And the legislature passes a law liberalizing it in various ways. And the question that gets brought to the court by the Christian Democrats is, does this law sufficiently respect the value of fetal life, which the Constitution has to protect? Right. So it, it comes from an, uh, the opposite perspective of is fetal life being protected en- enough by this liberalization law as opposed to mm-hmm. is women's autonomy protected enough by this uh, abortion restriction now in Roe, Justice Blackman, who writes the majority opinion, takes up the question of fetal rights under the Constitution and says fetuses are not constitutional persons and have no rights at all and he actually says that the reason I have to say that is because otherwise the case would be over. I have to address this question because there's no way of of recognizing fetal life and women's autonomy in the same opinion. <laughs> German court does the opposite, right it says. Well, of course, the Constitution cares about the value of fetal life, and this is a very sensitive topic in post-Nazi Germany. And they say, we can't say that there are particular lives that are not worthy of constitutional protection. We don't do that here. And so we have to think that that's something that the Constitution protects. But it also, of course, protects women's interests in controlling their own lives. And so the legislature is obligated to respect both those things at the same time. Now, without getting too deep into the weeds here, because there are a lot of details, this eventually leads to a grand political compromise. And the compromise centers on how do you give women genuine choices in the abortion context? How do you give women choices whether to decide whether to become a parent or not? And the court on numerous occasions recognizes, as the legislature recognizes, that criminalization doesn't really protect fetal life if people go out and get abortions anyway, but do it illegally or under the radar, that one of the best ways to protect fetal life is to make sure that women actually have some support when they have children. That's prenatal and postnatal health care. That's child care. That's employment guarantees. That's leave policies. And the legislature negotiates across all sides of the debate. People who are very hostile to abortion rights and people who are not end up negotiating in the shadow of the court's judgments negotiating a regime that says abortion is basically available in the first trimester. It's less available in the second trimester, but at the same time you've got to have lots of social support so that women have genuine choices. That's a political outcome. Uh, I'm not suggesting that that political outcome will be negotiated here or even that it's the best political outcome. It's just to say that the controversy around abortion rights um, has dramatically reduced in Germany since the 1970s, and it's dramatically increased in the United States. What we see in the U.S. is states coming up with the most draconian envelope-pushing laws they can and trying to get it in front of a favorable court, right? That's the dynamic here. And that's a very unhealthy dynamic around an issue about which there's a lot of political disagreement and also a lot of political consensus that it gets harder to reach if courts treat the issue in this binary way.
1: Coming up after one last short break, this conversation took place before the Dobbs decision struck down Roe v. Wade and radically changed the status of abortion in the U.S. But despite the different landscape in a post-Roe America, it's still worth exploring. What if the U.S. legal system had handled abortion the way that other countries did? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and savings. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try GreenLight for free. GreenLight.com slash gray area.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
1: Again, this conversation was taped in 2021 before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade.
2: You know, it's a really interesting counterfactual. What if we had done abortion in the U.S. the way that Germany did? But one other interesting point of comparison that kept running through my mind when I was thinking about this treatment is the way that Canada handled the issue. I sort of foregrounded my hand on this early on um, because I've got family there. But, you know, in 1988, the, the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that all abortions were legal that it was on, on a matter of fundamental rights for women. right? It's, I believe, the most sweeping protection of abortion rights anywhere in, in the developed world. And this not only didn't lead to American-style polarization on abortion, it actually has successfully taken the issue off the table. Right In the last round of elections, one accusation leveled against the uh, – Conservative Party's candidate for the premiership, he's a more social conservative, was that he was trying to reopen, quote-unquote, the the question of abortion. So even, even bringing up the idea that you might want to do something to change the country's abortion settlement is considered such a negative that the conservative candidate has to distance himself from it, which makes me wonder, right, is it really the court ruling that led to this different outcome in the United States versus Germany? Or is it some kind of underlying social dynamic, You know, some ideological cultural difference that led to Germany and Canada having less polarization on this issue specifically than you see in the United States? So for
3: sure, there are cultural dynamics happening. And I think it's important to note that you know, in Canada, we're talking about 1990, Germany, 1970s. The dynamics change in these countries over, over time as well. I'm not sure I view the Canadian situation as necessarily a success. It's a success from the perspective of of abortion rights, for sure, in that legislatures just don't get involved in the business of trying to restrict uh, abortion. The kind of canonical Canadian decision here is one that put up certain procedural obstacles, and then there was just never any law reenacted, and it's just been left to not be an issue that becomes a, a, a political issue at all. The story that I try to tell I try to be careful to say, you know, you can't just, you know, pick up an abortion regime in one country and and put it in another. The dynamics around abortion rights in the U.S. were intermingled very deeply with questions of race in the 1970s, with the realignment of the Republican Party in the 1970s, right? So there are all kinds of political factors going on. As we talked about earlier, the U.S. is a much more libertarian society than Germany. Certainly during the Reagan revolution, You know, the idea that you were going to create this massive social state in support of women ran against various political currents. So there are a lot of factors going on, but they did interact with the court's decision. And one of the things I try to show in the book is that there is a vibrant and ideologically diverse anti-abortion movement in the early 1970s, and that kind of big tent falls apart entirely. (laughs) within a year or two of Roe versus Wade being decided because it ends up radicalizing the more conservative elements of the anti-abortion movement. And they purge more moderate people from the movement, right? The leader of the biggest anti-abortion group at the time Roe versus Wade was decided, her husband was a Planned Parenthood member, right? She was in favor of birth control, right? She was trying to reach out to Democrats, reach out to um, people active in the black civil rights movement, and she and her followers are basically kind of kicked out of the anti-abortion movement in the 1970s, right? So wow, it's the, the radicalization of politics happens as a direct consequence of Roe versus Wade. Now, again, there are lots of other factors going on. And there are lots of people who have told this very complicated story, you know, Mary Ziegler and Reba Siegel and a bunch of other people. And I encourage you to read their their work to understand the politics of this. But Roe was a big part of changing anti-abortion politics in the mid-1970s.
2: It's really interesting, right? Whatever international comparisons one wants to make, the very contingent and specific nature of the American political dynamics surrounding abortion led to a different kind of discourse when the right was absolutely entrenched in the way it was by Roe versus Wade, throwing it into the situation where, as you said earlier, right, trying to get the law changed requires legislatures to play this this game of chicken with the courts, which I know for a fact makes abortion rights defenders feel threatened. And abortion opponents don't feel like there's any kind of middle ground anymore in the way that you were describing it a second ago, in part because of these historical processes, right? The purging of people who had this different view. So you're not proposing a like monocausal kind of model where it's if we had just done this one thing with the courts. Maybe things would have been different. It's that there were a lot of complicated things at work, and Roe versus Wade played an important role in pushing those undercurrents in one direction rather than getting us to a point where we could have had something, some kind of settlement that would have reduced partisan tensions around abortion, which arguably are a root cause of of a lot of other different cascading partisan polarization, like the increasing identification of religious conservative Christians with the Republican Party. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think at the
3: most thin level, what I would say is that it is not inevitable that this particular polarizing conflict cannot be resolved in any way. You know, we don't have political compromise around abortion rights at all. It just doesn't exist in the U.S. We have people who win and people who lose, but we don't have compromise or negotiation around it, even though... Most Americans are between the extremes of the parties on this issue. And if you look around the world, there certainly are lots of places where abortion rights are highly controversial. But in most places, in large swaths of the world, those rights are not actually uh, particularly controversial in much of Asia and much of Europe, for example, uh, and in Canada, as you mentioned.
2: So if you think there's a better way for American courts to think about the way in which they operate and the sort of very foundations of how jurisprudence should work, what would it look like for the American system to be more like these international systems that you aspire to? Like, how would we have to start changing? Or is it the kind of thing that one can change in any feasible sense? Well, I think it's the kind of thing that one can change, and part of the reason –
3: this book is written not as an academic monograph. You know, I'm trying to reach audiences who may not sit in a law school class necessarily or, or have ever done so is to um, reach as broad an audience for these kinds of arguments as possible. I mean, judges and, and young lawyers are, are also an audience for this kind of argument. You know, courts are leaders here and the problem of the book is not just a problem of courts, but I think courts do end up taking some leadership here and they they suck a lot of oxygen out of political conversation. Mm. You know, there are little things. I mentioned the Second Amendment and the 2008 decision in which the Supreme Court says that there is under the Second Amendment an individual right to bear arms. When there are legal conversations around that case, they're often about originalism and the founders and Justice Scalia has a whole... Um, riff on how the founding era understood gun rights. And Justice Stevens has a long dissenting opinion where he disputes a bunch of the points that Justice Scalia makes. But there's a kind of forgotten other dissenting opinion by Justice Breyer, um, who is the person on the court who has been closest to the ideas of the book in his judicial career, where he says, you know, yeah, 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 I'll join Justice Stevens's, you know, dissenting opinion saying I don't really think that there was an individual right to bear arms, um, at the founding. But what I'm really concerned with is what kinds of laws can we actually pass even if there is an individual right to bear arms? And he he makes the point that in in the 18th century, there were lots of regulation of guns, even though there was a Second Amendment and even though individual states had rights to bear arms as well, they nonetheless thought it was okay to regulate ammunition. It was okay to regulate who could bear arms and under what circumstances. There were lots of gun regulations. And so he was trying to say, look, This is really a question of how far is the government going? Is it respecting people's rights? Are there alternatives to what the government is doing that could get it to about the same place, but that wouldn't be as detrimental to people's individual rights? Those are the kinds of questions he wants to ask. And those are the kinds of questions that I encourage us all to ask when we get to disputes about rights, questions about why are we here? Are there ways of satisfying everyone (laughs) or getting close to it? without having to decide that one of us has rights and the other one doesn't because if I tell you that you don't have rights, the stakes of that dispute become very, very
2: high. What's interesting to me about that answer is it suggests that the seeds of a system that takes proportionality more seriously or that makes these kind of more judgment-oriented rulings already exist in the American legal system, right? It's not a kind of binary between ours and, and foreign systems. It's that... We can play up the elements of the American jurisprudential tradition that embrace this kind of thinking. And incrementally, judges and justices can bring that back into the mainstream of American legal thought. And I guess I assume lawyers would have a role to play here too, right? By making that kind of argument when defending or attacking statutes or arguing the merits of a case and so on, right? So it's it's not a process of like constitutional amendment to get what you want. No. It's a process of iterative decision-making by courts. Any sort of hardcore
3: lawyers who are listening to this conversation or people who are deeply immersed in constitutional law, some of them will be thinking, well, you know, rights aren't really absolute in the U.S. system. There are all kinds of ways in which we have what lawyers refer to as the tiers to scrutiny. And there are ways of government interests sort of working their way into rights conversations. And the seeds are absolutely there. What we tend to do is we tend to try to figure out what category to put a particular kind of rights conflict into, we put conflicts into boxes. And boxes have firm edges, and those edges end up distorting the underlying conflict. It's a different frame of mind that I'm trying to encourage, which again, I think has some consequences for how we approach each other as Americans when it comes to rights disputes. So in a dispute about religious accommodation, there often are ways in which you can accommodate religion and also, at the same time, make sure that no one is being denied a service, right? If that's true, we should go for that, right? Instead of trying to decide if there's a right to religious, you know, exception or, or not. As I wrote the book, I saw lots and lots of situations in which there was kind of money on the table, right? And what I say in the book is that instead of being ist which is to say, instead of discriminating uh, between litigants as to who has the right and who doesn't have the right, judges should be rights mediators. And acknowledge that there are rights and important values and interests on all sides of disputes and try to figure out where the common ground is. And that even though that feels like the kind of thing that happens in politics, that should also be the kind of thing that happens in constitutional judging, that judges set the boundaries for politics and then
2: allow politics to proceed. What you just said brings me back to, to to where we started this conversation almost about the distinction between legal and and moral thinking surrounding rights. Because it, it strikes me that getting people to rethink jurisprudence in the way that you're talking about is difficult, not just because of the you know entrenched nature of the legal academy, resistance to change, and so on, but also because people's ideas of what rights they deserve at least in the united states are bound up with this kind of moral thinking about rights in which when you claim one it's owed to you in a really deep and profound sense and that our political system really needs to deliver on that kind of promise and so rights in the legal sense should correspond or relate to these more abstract unalienable rights as the declaration lays out i wonder how much of a barrier The American cultural and moral imagination, maybe even religious imagination surrounding rights, is to enacting the kind of legal change that you're talking about and how you feel about whether or not moving towards a more proportional system is feasible given the underlying cultural and ideological beliefs in this country.
3: So I'll just say I don't know if it's feasible. I mean, I I think that the current that you identify is very strong. I don't think it's one – that we've always had this way of thinking about rights as these deep moral entitlements is pretty recent. Nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies is where I would date it, and it relates in complicated ways to our history with race. Uh, it's not the founders' right, so you're not doing James Madison's bidding here. This is really last fifty or sixty years. So to try to to denaturalize that as much as possible. So I, I think that the current that you identify this kind of moralizing of rights, this feeling that you're deeply entitled to the rights that you have is very much there. It's definitely very strong. I'll say two things about it. One is that part of the reason I give an historical narrative in the book is to try to show that there's nothing inherently American uh, about it. It's not something that is gifted from Madison or from Thomas Jefferson or the Declaration of Independence, that it's really a modern phenomenon that dates back, I'd say, to the 1960s, roughly. Uh, and interacts in interesting ways with our history of of racial abuse and racial oppression. But the second thing I'd say is, even if we recognize the importance of rights, and I, I'm trying to save rights, right? So I'm not hostile to rights. But it can't be the case in a genuinely pluralistic society that everyone has absolute entitlements to the things that are important to them. <laughs> um, those things come into conflict with one another. They don't come into conflict with one another because a bunch of us have rights and a bunch of us don't, or a bunch of us are angels and the rest of us are demons. They come into conflict because um, we're all different from one another, because we're different people, we have different values, we come from different backgrounds, we have different commitments. This is something the framers didn't understand, but something that we have to understand if we're going to be able to live in a society. And so it's, it's about persuasion and about reminding people that they have rights and also others have rights as opposed to what I think courts and, um, by extension, many of the rest of us tend to do, which is to try to decide who among us has rights and who doesn't. And that, I think, can't get anywhere in a genuinely pluralistic
2: society. That's a great place for us to leave this conversation. Jamal Green, I want to thank you so much for talking with me. The book is How Rights Went Wrong. And if you're interested, I'd really encourage reading it. It's a great tour inaccessible accessible language through a, a very complicated and important series of issues surrounding legal rights and their history in the courts in the United States. Jamal, really, thank you so much for a lovely conversation. Thank you. I
3: enjoyed it.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and A.M. Hall is our Deputy Editorial Director. Our show is off on Monday for Indigenous Peoples Day. We will be back on Thursday, but things will be a little different. This marks our final sign-off as Vox Conversations. We're going to keep bringing you more great conversations hosted by me twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, but we'll be doing so under a different name. Stay tuned for The Gray Area. We're exploring big ideas and asking questions that don't have simple answers. I'll be talking with some thinkers who I think you'll be pretty excited about. And I can't wait to share these conversations with all of you. You'll find them in the same feed. So stay subscribed. See you next week.